because I know that this is such a rare uh, experience, not just anybody can have. So you really got to try to get the most out of it. You know, whenever you're standing somewhere that uh, you might not ever be again, you just got to go for it. You know, you have to ask questions. You have to, you know, ask, of course, if you can touch something, but touch something, you know, feel something, you know, it's amazing to be in a space where things have happened thousands of years ago. Welcome to the SGV Master Key, a show where you will hear personal stories of triumph over failures and how others successfully navigated the unique landscape that is the San Gabriel Valley. What makes us different? Well, just like you, we have chosen the San Gabriel Valley for our home or businesses or both. We believe it is the people and small businesses that make this community great, and we love to share their stories with you. We always encourage your questions and feedback, and you can find all of our contact information at sgvmasterkey.com. Here are the hosts for the show, Russell Mono and Scott Warman. All right, welcome back to another episode of the SGV Master Key. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for spending this time with us. And, uh, you know, this is a kind of kind of a special show for us, Scott. This is uh, the 30th show or 30th, 30th episode since we started this. Yeah, I was really shocked to hear that. I didn't know we had done that many. You know, it's been a little bit different than what I, what I expected when we started. Um, the diversity of guests and just the incredible and interesting things that many people have done mm-hmm. that we've been able to listen to and to share with with our listeners is uh, unbelievable and right. i i've just been so uh, i've enjoyed it so much you know uh thomas he he said you know thomas has listened to every episode and he says wow you know just from day one he can see the progression and the improvement on you and i on doing the show and he he really likes that a lot can you feel that scott i no i don't actually really yeah i i haven't noticed it i mean I believe you've been good from the very start. I'm the one who needs improvement. <laughs> and and since, I'm, since I've never listened to a show, I have to admit <laughs> it. I have not listened to a single show. And that's what I need to do to, to learn to improve myself. But, you know, I'm just a little bit reluctant to listen. Yeah, sometimes it's hard, I think, to hear my own voice on anything or even to see myself. That's pretty tough, so... Yeah, I think many people have that same kind of, you know, feeling. But no, I think uh, your voice is great. <laughs> In fact, I think somebody, if I remember, somebody recently asked uh, if you would host something because of your voice. Oh, really? Okay. Um, you don't remember somebody asking that? I, I thought I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, but if you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, we appreciate you always, you know, tuning in, and we hope that we always bring you someone special and uh, that you can gain some insight to them and uh, what they bring to the community. Today is kind of special because this is our first return guest and they had so much to to share and so many interesting stories. I was like, let's get him back. And uh, the first episode was episode 27 and this is episode 30. So welcome back to the show, Glenn, Glenn Evans. Hey, Russell. Hey, Scott. Good to be back, guys. Thanks. Congratulations on 30 episodes. This is great. Yeah, Yeah. more than one half year. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's wonderful. And you know, both your voices sound really, really good. 
Oh, thank I mean, you. I know I'm listening through professional headphones and speaking through uh, right. and listening through a microphone, but you guys both sound really great. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. And coming from you, you're a, you're a specialist in this industry anyway. So that means more than uh, most people sure. might offer. Well, I do get to listen to a lot of people speak about great things with what I do. Um, and I'm typically in charge of the way things are uh, look and are shot Mm-hmm. for documentaries dealing with ancient architecture, uh, endangered animals, treasure, things like this. That's typically what, I've, what I'm usually part of, traveling mm-hmm. internationally and bringing those stories home, uh, working with a director and a producer, and then myself being the director of photography. But, um, you know, when you get in those situations, uh, of course you have your designated job, but it, it slowly becomes a very much a team effort responsibility. Like everybody kind of moves into each other's part but it's uh, right. because you're working together as a team so being responsible and listening is a big part of the job as far as the look but also like if i'm hearing somebody say something or need them to say it again uh i can ask for that you know mm-hmm. but um i do love to listen to people tell great stories so i'm happy to be here with you guys and i'm happy that you're you guys are asking me about my stories so that's pretty yeah. great well it was a great episode 27 uh, where you talked about Antarctica and uh, we had just gotten into some conversation on the shroud and you know uh, you've got a lot of experience and you've been exposed to uh, a lot you've you know created things that have been shown to millions and millions of viewers so you know you've got that background that is really fascinating and so let's get into some more of it but first question i want to ask you how many countries have you uh been to oh 68 68 so that's uh wow (laughs) impressive impressive yeah Yeah. i'm very grateful to you guys i mean i didn't uh anticipate i would have traveled this much um but it's like i i kind of wandered into it and i used the camera as a reason and a way to get to travel the world and have these adventures. That's the way I think of it. You know, I, some people set out to be uh, directors of photography or camera people uh, to make as many shows as they can. And, you know, of course I want that for myself, but also uh, I was thinking the other day about it really um, I'm, I, I kind of am more the, op- not the opposite, but the inverted, I guess, of that particular person where I like to use the camera as an excuse to get to go somewhere. Because, you know, right. a lot of people that do what I do, they go to a sound stage every day and they make a great show. You know, they make a huge show that everybody gets to love and watch on whatever network you choose, HBO, Netflix, anything like that. But, but the, the, the thing that makes me a little different that I'm grateful for is is at least I get to go to the desert or go to Antarctica or go experience that animal or this uh, architecture and actually be there and still work in the same industry. Yeah, because when you're making your visits to foreign countries or even exotic locales in in the U.S., you're not going for a one-week vacation. You're going and it's a penetrating visit and experience for you. You're learning a lot you're seeing things that most people can't see and not only that a lot of times it's very very interesting during the times when you're not working because then you're having lunch with a 
an archaeologist that's made some great discovery or a scientist that's living uh, somewhere in a rainforest that's discovered some animal or insect or something incredible. And you're just having a sandwich next to them and get to listen to them uh, mm -hmm. tell you stories off camera. It's pretty fascinating. Do you keep a journal or how, how, how are you memorializing everything besides obviously the film? Well, social media, I say maybe I overshare, but I do post quite a bit and uh, write things down. Yeah, I do keep a journal. Um, and just I have a very good memory, too, uh, because I try to invest my um, I try to be present wherever I'm working. So it's like the memories are very vivid and because I enjoy it so much, I pay very close attention to detail, you know? Uh, so I can really focus on and have a great memory of my experience during my work. And these experiences, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's really different because you do have to uh, be very present and involve yourself when you go somewhere to, uh, make a film because, or a documentary, because you only have a certain number of days you're the one being hired to uh, do your job. There's no one that can really replace you. So you don't really get any sick days. You know, they can't just call somebody when you're in India or Egypt or South America and replace you because you're not feeling well. So there's a lot of the team coming together. And um, like I said, like really creating a good um, foundation to get the job finished and dealing with all these unforeseeable things that could get in the way, you know? So mm -hmm. Being present, uh, being familiar, being smart, being able to ask questions, it's a big part of uh, staying with the team together for a long period of time to be out there for so long because you're gone. You know, I'm, I'm gone usually 10 months out of the year when we get onto a series or are making a documentary about these kinds of things. And you're right. You have to be reliable. You can't take a vacation in the middle of a shoot when you're in the Antarctic Sea. And for those who, again, I just would encourage listeners right now to go back and listen to episode 27 because of the, just the fascinating story of how you were sort of, you know, abandoned or, you know, left on a, on a, a glacier next to a glacier there. And you, you had no idea whether you would <laughs> ever get out alive. And uh, that's really interesting, but the reliability factor, you you need to go in and they need to count on you. And you, you for yourself, you need to just experience fully what, you're, what you have this opportunity to experience. That's right. And, you know, I have this very cheesy saying, but team stands for together, everyone achieves more. That's what we say out there uh, when we work together because uh, it can't be just one person Everyone has a responsibility that needs to come together. And if anyone needs help doing their job, then who, who is there to help them but the person sitting next to them? So you really do get intertwined together as a team to not only uh, get the job done, but like we pointed out earlier in Antarctica, to just even survive mm -hmm. at times, you know, to get through. We, we've been having conversations re recently about team building and uh, how that looks and getting people who are great at what they do, doing what they're great at and what they, what they enjoy. And I was really taken back by, by that, you know, what you pointed out last time on, on how important that is. It's not just, you know, how good are you with the camera or telling stories, but how does that team work? Because you may need to rely on them to, to save your life or not to, not to get you in danger when you're out there. That was really fascinating for me. Yeah. Uh, I also really enjoyed that your ability to paint 
the scene with your words. And I imagine, you know, since you're very creative, uh, that that came naturally for you. But uh, that was that was really impressive. Hey, thank you so much, Russell. You know, it's I'll be honest. It's a lot of fun getting to be able to do these things that maybe nobody would be able to do because you can operate a camera and walk with a group and be hired to tell a story. Um, I, you know, I've got this, uh, strange thing. Like, um, if let's say you went on safari in Africa, you know, which I've been on safari in Africa a few times and it's been fantastic. I, I, I couldn't recommend it more. And really, if you want to learn the true, uh, triumphs of life, just go to safari and watch the way the animals handle themselves, the way they live, the way they escape, the way they pass away. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's crazy to watch it because there are no rules, you know, here you think, okay, we have all these rules where someone's going to come in the, in between this animal from hurting this other one in Africa, it just doesn't happen. You know, the, (laughs) the lion will get the zebra, you know, um, that's the law of the jungle. So but there, for people, of course, it's very, very safe when you go on safari. You, you you go to a lodge, let's say, you spend the night. It's very, very nice. And then they have these wonderful, like, Toyota Land Cruisers or things, you know, Range Rovers that fit quite a number of people. And then you get to ride on these roads and look at these animals, do their thing, be themselves. Elephants eating branches from trees, giraffes running. But with the camera, I'm able to get out of the vehicle I'm able to be on the ground with these animals. Mm-hmm. I'm be, I'm able to film people in opened air jeeps darting animals with uh, uh, tranquilizers for scientific research, and then jump out of the truck with them and run over and put my hands on um, uh, a lion or an elephant or a rhinoceros in this case, which is what I was doing, uh, filming rhinos being darted and being moved so they wouldn't be poached. So I have a question about that. Yeah, so, filming animals uh, because. Quite often you see uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, an activity in the wild. It could be on a safari or it could be in a jungle or in the ocean. But you must need to set up the photo and let it run sometimes, what, 10, 12, 20 hours a day, two days? I mean, in order to capture some of these things that are captured, they don't just happen every minute. <laughs> That's so right. How, what is the process? Well, I mean, how does that work? You bring up a good point, Scott. They don't just happen every minute. And you know what? They often happen only once. So yeah, right. You, Didn't you see last time it was like weeks for a narwhal to like have its uh, tusk come out of the water? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that takes a long time, to, especially too, to capture that in any quality, you know, uh, to be there ready for it, you know, but you know, you bring up a, this is, this is interesting because I talked briefly. I remember last time about, uh, my experience anyway, the difference between what a British production company does to make their documentaries and what a lot of American companies do to make their documentaries. They're very, very different. If you go to work for a British team, typically the team is much, much smaller and you're out there for a lot longer period of time. And there's usually no host. Like, for example, Planet Ocean, let's say, or, uh, or Planet Earth, you know, um, these great BBC uh, documentaries with uh, Attenborough at the helm, you know, mm-hmm. he, he does maybe an open or a close, but he's not out there trying to speak as a host while the animals are doing their things. Now, uh, and they spend a lot of time out there to make these perfect shots happen, and they've got 
great equipment to work with. And the American side of it too is the same way. But usually what I've noticed is a lot of times the Americans uh, and shows I've been involved with have all had a host. So they want you out there for less time, but they fill up a lot of the time for the show by having an expert talk to you or Mm -hmm. somebody working with a scientist as a host and then maybe darting the animal and, and maintaining it or moving it or protecting it. So um, there is a difference. Now, you asked, how do we capture these things? How do they happen? Usually it's a lot of uh, collaboration with either fish and game or a wildlife or a science study that knows where these animals are. And that's how you start with it. So then, then suddenly you know where the animals are so you don't have to work as hard to find them because there's already a scientific group monitoring them so then you 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 work uh closely with them to get you in the proximity of of whatever animal it is that you're trying to film and then that's where you know where to find example like where the nests are or Mm. where they breed or where they like to get water you know that's a huge thing you have to find out usually where they either uh uh are sleeping drinking or eating or mating yeah right well, I apologize to our listeners if we didn't introduce, if you haven't figured out by now what Glenn does, uh, either from the previous episode uh, or by the context here, he's a director of photography, but he also does action uh, photography as well. And uh, so some of that of what you're talking about happened with Jeff Corwin, right? And you said you've been with him for over 10 years. Yeah. In fact, since it's been since 2001 now is when we first started working together. Oh almost 20 years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, but we took a little break. He went and did some stuff for CNN and I went and did my own thing with, uh, the sea shepherds and with making some, uh, documentaries, but I've always stayed close with Jeff and we're very, very good friends. And I really like the level of work that Jeff does because he, um, I think he really combines entertainment with serious scientific study and most importantly, preservation. And I think just Within the last couple of years, you had a major show with him, didn't you? Yes, we did Ocean Treks. It's an ABC show. Mm -hmm. And Ocean Treks is a great show because it does travel around the world. And, um, uh, you know, it is basically showing you what you can do in each country that you travel to by ship. But the great thing about it is, is that there's always a preservation story in there for people that might not know uh, that this animal's endangered or know that this study exists in whichever country we're working in. And then that usually gets a big, big reaction for the fans of the show because they they weren't normally expecting that. They're expecting culture and food, which they'll get, but then you get to see what animal lives there and what you can do to help out. Wow. You, you sound like you're very passionate about that, about um, helping to... Uh, gain attention for these animals that are either endangered or or hurting yeah they there are a lot of mass extinctions going on that we don't even know about you know and they happen all the time so you know the only way to help prevent that is to get people to know about it at least you know and it's not just the big animals you know it's not just the polar bears or the humpback whales or things like this it's a lot of times it's frogs you know or butterflies, or a lot of these canaries in the coal mine that help you learn whether or not you have a healthy environment, you know, or, you know, basically these small animals are the ones first that will disappear uh, if there's a, a problem with the planet. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, you have traveled extensively, as we mentioned earlier, and you, I'm sure you collect things from your travels, right? And 
uh, it looks like you've collected this uh, from somewhere. Would you want to share that with us? I, I will. I, so last time on, on the last episode you had me on, I was told to bring a piece of show and tell. So I, I did. I brought a Spanish, I, I remember, yeah. a, a, gold, piece a, of eight. a piece of silver, pieces of eight yeah. from a Spanish galleon wreck. Um, so, <laughs> well, this time I just want to tell a quick story to set up this piece. Um, and of course, you know, I'll try to keep it fast, but um, we were on Ocean Treks. And we were sent to Russia to film in St. Petersburg. And we were also there uh, to go to um, the Catherine Palace where they have something known as the Amber Room. Have you ever heard of the Amber Room? I don't know it. Vaguely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I brought, okay. So the Amber Room is very interesting. So uh, in the Catherine Palace during the 18th century, uh, the amber room was installed. It's basically imagine a, a room not not much uh, larger than this, but completely covered in amber, decorative stones, uh, uh, pieces of amber carved with the two-headed rooster, the symbol of the czar, everything, you know, the czar that was controlling Russia at that time, uh, the emperor and the family, uh, the Romanovs controlling Russia for 300 years. And this actually was given... Um, to uh, the czar as a gift. And it was made, uh, the room was actually built in 1707 and installed at the Berlin City Palace uh, for the Prussian king. But then the Prussian king gave uh, the Amber Room as a gift to William I. And he gave the room to the czar Peter the Great is basically what they did. So they installed that room in the Catherine Palace, which was the palace in Russia named after the wife of Peter the Great, who actually ruled Russia for two years after he died. <laughs> but the great interesting thing is, let me now get to the exciting point of history. During World War II, the Nazis, the Germans, obviously knew of the Amber Room. They knew of its worth. They knew where it was. They knew it was in the Catherine Palace. So when the Nazis invaded Russia, of course, what do they do is they go straight for that Catherine Palace and the ice uh, in the terrible, terrible winter of Russia. And they invade the palace. And the Russians knew that the Nazis were coming to take this sacred amber room. So they tried to hide it. They tried to put fabric and everything in, in the room. They tried to basically hide the walls, but it didn't work. The Nazis came in. They parked their motorcycles inside the palace. They actually burned pieces of wood to warm up the place. And they cut away the fabric and found that amber room. And they took it apart. And they put it in a train car, only never to be found ever again. Still, to this day, it's disappeared. Wow. wow. The whole room, all the walls of the room, gone. And in 1979, uh, now, the Russians decided they were going to rebuild the amber room. So they bought all of this amber and started cutting it. And they were looking at old photos to try to see exactly how the room was and the way the pieces were carved. And they finally, well, in 2003, they finished the room. So now the remake of all 100% amber is now in the Catherine Palace today, again, rebuilt because they never recovered it when the Nazis took it. Well, that's an incredible uh, story. It was originally a gift from Germany Yes. to Russia. They went to take it back. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and I know that Hermann Goring, who was the, uh, I believe he was the minister of war for Germany, would go into other countries and loot them of their art 
and valuables and keep them in his own uh, for his own possession. It's true. Yeah. It's a, it was open season. You know, the Nazis loved to have relics. They loved to have treasure. They loved to have gold. Right. And also too, if they needed to fund their war machine, right. they would loot the countries that they would take over and they would try to sell or use yeah. that wealth to, you know, but Goring uh, would, would take them to his own personal, uh, estate. Yeah. Uh, which was, uh, you know, I mean, I think he was persecuted for it. Well, I don't know, because he actually, I believe, committed suicide. I'm oh, not sure maybe. if he's one of those, but yeah, yeah. but anyway, he would, they would go in and he personally would go in and, and loot and steal. Yeah. I mean, and there was a lot of very, very impressive pieces of work that were stolen back then by the yeah. Germans, by the Nazis at the yeah. time, um, you know, and people are still working to recoup, to get things back, you know. Yeah. There's that famous right. Klimt painting, the lady in gold that finally was stolen from her family. She actually got it back from a museum. Right. Um, yeah. But this brings up another point where, uh, you know, you have these, uh, like, for example, Russia, who uh, at night in 1917, the people, the Bolsheviks basically overthrew their czar, mm-hmm. Nicholas II. Um, and this was the end of a 300 year rule where the czar was basically speaking to God, the emperor of Russia basically now becoming um, what was going to become the communist society, the USSR, um, you know, under Lenin and then Stalin during Mm -hmm. World War II. Uh, But then during the Cold War, uh, the USSR fell apart. But, but, um, you know, like we're talking about artwork and things like this, uh, during that time, during the time of the USSR, that they didn't want anything to do with anything czar related or even church related. So a lot of that stuff was just being sold, leaving the country, being bought for cheap. Russian icons, uh, work representing the czar, all that stuff. They didn't want any part of it anymore. They were now a communist society. I'm sure even some of the Russian citizens were smuggling it out just to protect it or save it, you know. Good point. You're probably right for sure about that, Scott. And also, um, you know, for example, when we were in Russia, now that Russia is Russia again and not the USSR, you have pieces of work, religious icons, other things like this, that Russia, when they were the USSR, they were getting rid of, they were letting go. Now you cannot take them out of the country. Russia is very protective of its heritage, especially pieces that are still in Russia during the time where it kind of lost its heritage during the communist Soviet Union stage of its, of its history. So now they're a national treasure that uh, they won't allow to be um, exported or leave the country at all. But you know, uh, I was there filming the new Amber room in the Catherine palace. And of course I look at these kinds of artworks as uh, treasure to me. I mean, things that are just, it fascinates me uh, who painted these icons, who made these icons, if these icons could talk, what stories they would tell, you know. So it's very fascinating. So obviously I was looking at anything I could find and there were a number of icons in the Catherine Palace, but surprisingly enough, a lot of them were burned to keep the Nazis warm in the, in the palace when they were uh, occupying it. You know, a lot of art was also destroyed, you know. And like you pointed out, maybe some pieces made it out to be saved. So 
I didn't get a Russian icon myself um, in Russia, but when I was in Norway, I was outside of Russia, and I had a friend, I have a friend that actually has a gallery, and I found a Russian icon of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas uh, comes from the 4th century. He was Greek. He was a saint. He's the patron saint of uh, merchants, the patron saint of students, He's the patron saint of all a number of different kinds of things, of, of people that brew beers, prisoners who have been wrongly accused. He's the patron saint of thieves, patron saint of sailors and children. There's a list goes on. <laughs> yeah, but he because, also is Santa Claus. Yeah. Oh, oh, Saint Nick. Saint Nick. So oh, this what I, I brought see. today is my Russian icon painted in 1880 of Saint Nicholas. And it is oh. Russian, and it comes from Russia, but I got it when I was in Norway. It had already made it out of the country uh, before it could be either destroyed or So who painted burned. it? Do you know? No, I don't know, because a lot of the icons are not signed. In fact, mm. many religious pieces are not signed. And mm. I didn't buy this because it was a religious piece. I bought it because it was a treasure and a history. The historical and value. Time. And right. now, the great thing about this, this is painted on wood. And the method used is called egg templar. It's a little bit heavy. And you'll see Nicholas there. This is actually a winter icon. Can, can we uh, lift that up so sure. we can see the, this camera? Oh, absolutely. This is a winter icon because St. Nicholas has his crown on. If it was a summer icon, there'd be no crown. Oh, okay. Now, the interesting thing about this is uh, egg templar is a very old way to paint uh, it is actually egg yolks mixed with pigment and it lasts for a very, very, very long time. I was just going to ask. Yeah. Especially on wood. Um, so this is something that I had gotten, uh, legally <laughs> and you can buy Russian or not Russian icons. Now, now that the Ukraine is at war with Russia, it's, it's crazy, but a lot of the icons now come from the Ukraine uh -huh. because they're kind of going through a similar thing that Russia was going through during that time of their wanting to change government, you know, it's like suddenly yeah. the art goes out the window in some ways. Okay. Uh, we, we can put it down. Well, wait, I want to oh. show you one more thing. <laughs> okay. So the most interesting thing about Russian icons, if you ever have a chance to see one, especially made of wood and up close, what's fascinating is not only just the front, but the back. Uh oh, you see, I framed this in a way where I could see the back because the back of the icon. You asked me who painted this icon. I don't know, but you will find scribbles and drawings, rehearsal drawings of the artist who actually painted the icon on the front. Wow. You can this is see a piece of wood. Yeah. Yes, it is a very old piece of wood. That is amazing. And there you can see the scribbles, the marks and the practices of the artist before they painted it on the other side. And a lot of icons have this. You should definitely take a look at the back of any icon if you are looking at it because it helps authenticate it. And, you know, this looks like pencil. Now, you know, the pencil was invented in 1795 by a scientist working for Napoleon Bonaparte's army. Oh, yeah. France, the modern pencil was. So this was painted 100 years after that. So just because it looks like a modern day pencil doesn't mean it's not real. <laughs> as long as you're teaching us. So... <laughs> Prior to the pencil being developed, what did art, you know, what were artists like Da Vinci using or even going back before? 
Oh my you know, goodness. before him. Yeah. Well, charcoal, charcoal I think too, probably. from fire that charcoal was a, is a major, major instrument in a lot of the pieces that happened, uh, ancient pieces from cave drawings to, mm. uh, pieces on, on parchment, things like this. Uh, charcoal was huge. Also, you know, don't forget about, uh, the feather with ink, you know, pigment, mm. you know, things like this papyrus, uh, Egyptian, uh, ancient scrolls and things, you know, various things were used. Um, and you know, I don't know, it just fascinates me to see the hand of, um, whoever painted this, Yeah, you know, in 1880. Well, it also points out for you the value of what you're doing in your own life, because every trip you take, it's a whole brand new learning experience. You're learning a completely new subject, maybe in some cases, right? I do. And you know, I, I, I selfishly use the opportunity to try because I know that this is such a rare uh, experience, not just anybody can have. So you really got to try to get the most out of it. You know, whenever you're standing somewhere that uh, you might not ever be again, you just got to go for it. You know, you have yeah. to ask questions. You have to, you know, ask, of course, if you can touch something, but touch something, you know, feel something, you know, it's amazing to be in a space where things have happened thousands of years ago. Cause America is really fairly new you know we don't have the opportunity all the time to stand somewhere where something went down hundreds of years ago i mean there's a few places but when you go to europe or you go to india or africa or the middle east those places are all very very old and you know partially where civilization began it's um it's quite a thrill yeah you you mentioned uh, that this is Saint Nicholas that Santa Claus is based on, and we were speaking earlier that this is the story that uh, my wife and I choose to teach our children about uh, surrounding Christmas and and who Santa Claus really was. And a lot of people don't even know that story. Yeah, do you want to share something about that? Well, I think that Saint Nicholas, um, you know, he was, I guess, is famous for secret gift giving during the time when he was alive in the fourth century, he did quite a few things. And I, he was even considered a saint when he was alive. So, um, and it's interesting too, if you look at the progression of Russian history, a lot of it comes from Constantinople and a lot of it comes from Greece. You know, if you look at the Russian alphabet, even though they are, are Christians, um, they don't have like the Latin alphabet that we have. They have, their alphabet is based on Greek writing. Mm -hmm. So it's during that time when Constantine became the emperor of Rome and legalized Christianity, but tried to move his capital to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, Turkey. But that really influenced a lot of what happened east in Europe and in Asia. Right. And, and the jolly fat guy with the beard and the bag <laughs> is really a marketing thing, right? With Probably. Yeah. Well, I think Probably Germany, German, German yeah. had something oh. to do with Papa Claus, you yeah. know, Chris Kringle these things, but I, I just love having, uh, an original Russian icon of basically Santa Claus in my living room above my piano. And I often look at it during the holidays or I'll make a fire in the fireplace and have a glass of wine and look at St. Saint Nick, you know, Russia to me has always been this sort of breathtaking, huge expanse of history and of, of emotion and you know you read the russian novelists whom i love dostoevsky and 
you know, I, I just, just the, just the intensity and the passion of, of these novels and the history of Russia is, did you have an experience, uh, an opportunity to travel in much in Russia? I did a little, but as you know, it's tough because it is a communist country. Uh, well, socialist country, I should say it was a communist country. Um, when we got to go to Russia, we went to St. Petersburg, which I think is probably the most friendly environment to, uh, travel and see things. There's quite a bit to see there. Uh, but getting around Russia, uh, on your own, I think too, you point this out. I love Russia. I had a fantastic time when I was there. I think a lot of people find Russia maybe a little intimidating because of the Cold War and because of the history. Uh, but I found the people very, very friendly. But, you know, again, I was in the places. I went to St. Petersburg and Moscow is where I was. Mm-hmm. And I went to the Red Square and I got to ex- see uh, quite a bit of, of of the kinds of things you'd expect to see there. And I was treated very well and the trains are nice. The subway is like a museum. It's the like the ceilings are all carved out of marble and things like this. It's very, very nice. Um, but I think because of the history of Russia and maybe the, the struggles that the United States has with Russia now, a lot of Americans are maybe a little bit uh, intimidated by going there. But I think you should just be scared and do it anyway. <laughs> I feel like our show is like a small snapshot of your life. Like you, you get to experience all these wonderful things and go places and, and immerse yourself. And, you know, we, we get to experience that although on a, uh, you know, different level and, uh, hope the listeners are, are vicariously getting that experience through us. But, you know, this is, uh, clearly why we wanted to have you on again. I'm sure you've been asked what is your favorite country or what was your favorite experience? Uh, and I, I'm sure it's not clear that there's just one answer, but uh, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, I really enjoy old world magic. You know, I, again, like where things have happened thousands of years ago. So the places that really get me excited are places like Egypt, Israel, you know, um, looking at like where major battles have happened that have been written about, you know, and then also along with it, those kinds of artifacts and things that you can find only there that are a hundred percent real, you know, that stuff really gets me excited. So I would say the old world. I also, I love India. We were talking about India earlier. I love Nepal, um, the magic of the Himalayas and all of the old temples and things there to me. Um, you know, but even, even, I know I'm, I'm, you said there, there can't just be one. You're right. You know? Uh, but I, if I was going to travel now, like my, my wife and I are, we're thinking about doing when, you know, the pandemic is over, we would love to do the Mediterranean. We'd love to go to Greece and Rome, but then, uh, cross the sea and go to Egypt. And then, um, if we possibly could keep traveling to go to Jerusalem, that would be fantastic, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think, though, if you were going to go, you'd have to go to Israel first, because when I traveled to Israel, uh, you have to go through an extensive interview process oh. and they want to know every Muslim country you've been to and, yeah, you know, whether right. it's just for traveling and this and that. So it's a little bit. So you probably would want to start in, in Israel first and then work your way out. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. Have you had any chance to uh, search for those things in Israel, in Jerusalem? I have. Wow. Well, 
I love how you, <laughs> the suspense, right? <laughs> you can't just say yes. <laughs> I I want more though. You know, I don't mean to to be like the kind of person that tries to go to an old world place and like take artifacts that belong to that country there, but legitimately it's exciting for me because I appreciate the history so much that of course it's it's tempting to want to have a piece of that, that a piece that's not going to hurt anybody from being gone, you know, but you can at least have it in your home and respect it and take care of it and tell the story about it. So it keeps living and breathing. Otherwise it just disappears into a, a room and a box at the back of a warehouse someplace, you know, it belongs in a museum or in somebody's home where they can talk about it, you know? And of course not like I would never, ever, uh, um, want to have any part of bringing home an artifact or something that I felt belonged in a museum, you know, mm-hmm. but luckily there are things that are on the market and, and um, you know, you, you want to make sure that those things are authentic. You don't want to be spending money on fakes or anything like this, but also too, I treasure those handcrafted things like rugs. I love rugs. You know, I went to Morocco and I bought my rugs there. They were, uh, from a merchant that actually was making them with two other Berber families, you know, nomadic mm-hmm. tribes there in Marzuga and the Sahara desert. Um, you know, you go to Marrakesh in the bazaar there, there's amazing things you can explore and find. And I found that Jerusalem too was very much the same way. It's a huge maze with these ancient streets that were, are thousands of years old. I mean, you can just hear the Roman sandals marching along the, the roads there. And then it's a lot of intricate shops and things. And you'd be amazed what you'd find yourself looking at in the middle of Jerusalem, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I um, like I said, I usually try to bring home something special from every place I've been. And um, if you saw my home, it would some would really love it. Some would be like, "What's all this crazy clutter?" You know. <laughs> but I love it, and it's my home, and so uh, I really appreciate it. Everything has meaning to you. It does. Well, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you have at home, and and I'm also interested in in what is your fantasy. Uh, you know, journey or place to investigate for these treasures. But let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. The legal process can be intimidating. You don't know where to start and you're unsure of what to expect. The attorneys and staff at the law offices of Scott Warmoth have been serving the San Gabriel Valley for over 35 years, helping people just like you navigate through the legal process and ensuring you're treated fairly. You can find them at law888.com or call 626-282-6868. That's 626-282-6868. All right, we're back with Glenn. Glenn, before the break, we were getting into your home and the stuff that you have collected there and the meaning to you. But uh, I'm interested, uh, we talked a little bit right now about uh some of the history, these treasures, as you, as you describe them, uh, specifically around Jerusalem. And, uh, I guess Jerusalem has to be biblical history, right? It does. I mean, the thing is, that's very great about Jerusalem. I think that a lot of people might not know or understand. Um, of course, Jerusalem is very important to Christians, but it is also extremely important to the Jewish community, obviously, and the Muslims, the three groups basically really work together to uh, have a hand in that ancient city of Jerusalem. You know, 
I had the privilege of filming in the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That is a very, very important, important place in Jerusalem because one, it's where Christ was crucified. And also you can see inside in the center of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where Christ was buried, the 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 crypt where he was there for three days. And then that oh. is there. So that was under uh, control of the Jewish Sanhedrin under Joseph of Arimathea. So that's that's what he owned? Correct. And Joseph of Arimathea was the uncle of Jesus. And he uh, basically prepared Jesus's body for burial. And when you first enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the first thing that you see is this flat stone. Now, it's not the actual stone where Christ's body was laid to rest, where Joseph of Arimathea prepared Christ's for body for burial, but I think it is the exact spot where it happened. And so a lot of people there are rubbing cloths on it. There's water that comes down onto the stone and people rub a cloth and then take it home with them as a, as a relic, as a, uh, something special, you know? Um, so when you go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre too, you can also see the hole in the ground where the cross was placed where Jesus was crucified. That's also there marked in gold in a circle. And you have to kneel on your knees and actually crawl under an altar type structure in order to place your hands there and to see it. And people line up to do this. That, that's interesting. I had always thought it was a, a hill, Calgary, right? And that they didn't know the location. This place I filmed, I wish I could show you these photos of where, what I was doing. Um, and, and also too, you, you remember uh, written in scripture, the cracked earth, the earthquake that happened um, as Christ died. I, they have windows where you can see the cracks in the rock as well, supposedly, I think, symbolizing what's written in the Bible there. Wow. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> and, and the ongoing effort to preserve the tomb where Christ is buried, uh, you can line up to go inside. It's very, very small. I was allowed to film in there, but I couldn't bring any lights in, and I couldn't, I couldn't bring a tripod in, and I had to get in line with anyone else that was wanting to get in there. So I was working with a host because we were making a documentary about the blood on the Shroud of Turin, and I was filming this uh, host entering the tomb but I, we basically had to follow him in as if we were tourists or people that were because we couldn't take precedent over anyone that had made their way all the way to get to see this but it was very 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 impressive and it was very small but um to actually stand in the same room where a uh, historical figure that millions of people worship where they were put to rest and where they rose from the yeah. dead that was quite a feeling is that under uh israel's control so it's under all three religions control. In fact, we had to get a permit from the Muslims, from the Christians and the Jews to film inside the church. And they would come up to us from the church, even though the, the church is primarily, you know, supporting Jesus and the Christians, they all take their time to preserve its importance together. So I'd have a, a Jewish rabbi come up and want to see my documentation and my producer would come over who's a friend of mine show them and then as soon as we'd show the rabbi here was uh, a muslim man saying please let us see that you have the permit uh proper to be here you know mm. it just it um it but it was very organized wow. very organized i'm pretty speechless at <laughs> just thinking of all of that you know 
Well, and it's something that everyone can do. I mean, once you get into the country, uh, if you could go to Israel, um, and I don't think enough people do that. I think that a lot of people from Europe do it, of course, and this, but Americans, I haven't spoken to very many Americans uh, that have been to Israel. Uh, some, I know uh, a friend of mine, um, I'm, I was born and raised Catholic, you know, but I know that if you are Jewish, you get, uh, I guess when you are about to become an adult or something, you can go on a uh, two-week trip paid for by the Jewish church. Mm to yep. go to Israel and explore. There's a name for it. Yeah. And a friend of mine, my camera assistant, he's Jewish, half Jewish, actually. He got to go on this trip. And so he had been there before, you know, oh. but um, it, it's still, I think that um, because it's difficult, I mean, the Israeli government, they really do want to know who you are. They want to know why you're going there. And, you know, as you know, Israel is in the midst of uh, some countries that, don't necessarily share the same views that Israel does, obviously. So if you have been to Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia, let's say, or even Malaysia or Indonesia, uh, Egypt, Morocco, uh, on, on a vacation, they want to know that you've been there and they want to, they want to know all of the places you've been. And then they will interview you and talk to you, but mostly then you will get your permit to enter the country and then you can go. And I think, I think more people should do it because if you can, it's more than one thing just to read the Bible and go to church, but if you can actually stand in the place where this thing that's happened that you've heard your whole life on Sunday mornings, it's incredible. Well, well that's just the thing, right? Like uh, in that part of the world, they have a huge reverence for it and it's a very real thing and, and it's a preservation of history. But here, I have noticed in, in my lifetime that there's a decline in even believing that this was a historical event that, you know, Jesus was even here with us. And I mean, it's, it's unreal. Like sometimes I would have a conversation and they doubt this and and that's just so bizarre to me. Yeah. Well, I think too, whether you believe in religion or not, okay, this is what I, uh, tell my friends. I'm, I'm not here to tell anybody what to believe or not to believe, but if something was written down thousands of years ago, let's say, and the places where these things were written about are here, are there, are real, you can touch them, you can stand next to them, you can see where this happened, whether you believe it or not, it's still incredible to be there because already what this person has written down is a few thousand years old. And I don't know if, if uh, I don't think many people in the United States have ever stood on uh, hallowed ground that ha- where something is written or said to have happened, whether it's a giant battle in Rome, whether it's where Christ rose from the dead. This is history. And this is something that people believe and it's huge and it affects the world. It affects, you know, look at all the things that religion has built. You know, you might not be a a Muslim, but look at all these giant, beautiful mosques and the architecture and what it took. You might not be a, a, a Buddhist, but look at this huge statue of a Buddha in the middle of the jungle that took, you know, everything that, that the people could come up with to try and build and how it stood there for a thousand years. I mean, that's incredible. Right. Well, yeah, it's, you know, that, that journey is definitely something that I, I want to go to. Uh, I understand that there's like a tour that you can take that it goes to these different historical places, specifically um, biblical places in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. But uh, 
yeah, I, I, I get chills just thinking about being able to stand in these places that, you know, I've, I've heard of and, and read you about. can, you can. And I get chills hearing the story of it because I, I guess there's just not enough. This information is not really known uh, to enough people. I also grew up Catholic and, and uh, you know, very much part of the church growing up. And it, until you just told me just minutes ago, I didn't, it never even dawned on me that you could actually go to the very place where Christ was buried and experience, you know, what you experienced seeing, uh, you, you know, the, maybe some of the same ground that was there when he was there, you know, the same rocks. The, uh, yeah. I, it's, it's something I just don't think we, we realize or think of. And, most, so most people, when they think about going somewhere on vacation, it's always to like a nice beach where you can swim the ocean or, you know, let's go to France and see the Eiffel Tower. I mean, all those things are fantastic. And of course you should. And, and France is one of my favorite places to go to as well. I mean, just the amount of art that's there and the beautiful city and uh, the history, obviously, of Paris and everywhere around, not to mention their beautiful wine and their delicious food. Mm -hmm. But um you absolutely can go to Israel and it is within your reach. And if you take the steps, you could be standing right there on the ground in places that you have heard about your entire life and actually feel what it's like to be there. You can do it and you just have to make it happen and take the steps to make it happen. Um, and I think it's great if, if people decide to step outside the box and maybe even their safe zone, because, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, Oh, well, Israel's dangerous. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with Palestine and of course Iran and Iraq and everything else. When I was there, I felt very, very safe. I have always yeah. heard Israel to be because of their incredible security forces. Nobody messes with Israel. I, I mean, <laughs> true. The, the most incredible security in the world. But not only that, I think people don't understand, too, that in Israel, there are tons of Muslims that live there. Yeah. There are mosques there. There are, you know, they are living together in harmony. It's not like only people of the Jewish and Christian faith live in Israel. That's just not true. There are plenty of Muslims and mixed culture inside Israel. Um, and it, it's a beautiful place. It's an incredible place. Yeah. And I think that people should not be intimidated to go there. In fact, if you want to have this fire inside you, um, basically imagining yourself being in the old world and the old world where things are written, I mean, imagine it. Israel is the place to go. Yeah, the only the only thing that I can draw upon uh, being somewhere was on the uh, Arizona Memorial. And you see all the names and you, you yes. imagine the sky filled with these planes and oh my what it must have been like. And that was surreal. And it was, you know, complete silence. So I, I can imagine, you know, going to these places of historical significance. I'm getting goosebumps right now, <laughs> fellas. When you, yeah, it's, it's exactly like that. It's a quiet, surreal feeling. And then you can, like, I've been to the Arizona Memorial as well. Yeah. Uh, very quiet. The ocean is very calm there. You look down below, you can see the ship at the bottom of the water there in Israel, uh, when I was at the church of the Holy Sepulcher, 
it was weird. It was noisy and quiet at the same time. It's very, very old, old stone archwork, you know, um, ancient architecture surrounding this very important place. And what really made me um, hard to get my head around was you're exactly right. You heard that Jesus was crucified on top of a mountain. And then when you think about his crypt, you think of like a cave somewhere or like where the stone was removed when they, when, when um, three days afterwards his body was gone, you know, but the place that you go to, they, I think, I mean, obviously they took that spot and they built this big thing around it. So those places are actually marked inside this huge church. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And the temple itself too. Um, it's crazy. There's even documentaries about its preservation because it was starting to fall apart and crumble upon itself. This, you know, 2000 year old, mm-hmm. um, stone mausoleum, let's say of where Christ was laid to rest, you know? So they actually had to have some very high tech science come in and maintain the structure. So it wouldn't fall apart also because so many people are visiting it, you know, I, I imagine Glenn with a, uh, a- you know, Stetson hat and a leather whip on the side. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you've even, even dressed up as Indiana Jones before, but <laughs> I have actually, okay. <laughs> for Halloween, it's one of my go-to costumes. <laughs> well, I, I definitely could picture that. So, uh, well, I, you know, I wish, I wish we could go into so much more of, of your stories, but, uh, you are also the first guest to, to go into another round of the SGV three, right? So I remember last show, let's see if I get it correct. You had Mount Wilson Trail. Yes, I did. You had uh, President Thai. Mm-hmm. And you had All India Cafe. Exactly. Yes. So those were your SGV3 last time. That's it. You have three new ones? I do indeed. <laughs> okay. Of course. I knew you guys were going to ask me this. <laughs> I came prepared. You know what I like to do, especially now as we're getting into spring and the weather is getting really, really nice. I love to go on bike rides. You know, I've got uh, a bunch of bicycles in my garage. In fact, I have eight bicycles, just me and my wife living in the house. But somehow I've got these cruiser bikes. My friend gave to me, I've got mountain bikes. I've got, so I love to go on bike rides and, uh, the city of Pasadena is so great. Um, and then right on the edge of San Marino, they have these bicycle signs. It says city of Pasadena with a bicycle on it. And our favorite ride that my wife and I like to do, it's very easy, but it's so relaxing, especially, you know, before the sun goes down, we like to ride up San Pasquale street to Caltech. And then we turn left and we come back down Lombardi street, beautiful bike ride. A lot of people on their bikes or walking or doing this. And the houses there are so amazing. It's just a beautiful place to ride a bicycle. Oh yeah, San San Pasquale is a beautiful street. Actually, from President Tai, right? Uh, you yeah, can, you can. Yeah, wow, what an a um, like it's yeah. large and it's always well paved. Yeah, beautiful homes and not a ton of traffic and everyone's really mindful. To yeah, it's very it. quiet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I love that bike ride. And now the other place that I love too, that I'm sure maybe other people have said on your show. I don't. I'm probably not that original with this one. But the Huntington Gardens right now is a wonderful place, and it's right there 
uh, off Lombardi. In fact, we ride by the Yeah, gate. it's just right on that same bike ride. Wonderful food, beautiful gardens there. Their museum is actually really, really incredible. They have original Mark Twain manuscripts there. Yeah. I mean, it's a very fascinating place to have in Pasadena. Um, World class. And, oh yeah. and not only that, but it's got, uh, what is the one real historical painting that's there? Um, oh. We'll have to look it up. Yeah. There, there is a, a blue boy. Yeah, blue boy. That's right. Yeah. I've, uh, yeah, that's it. There's also a Gutenberg Bible. Yeah, there. a Gutenberg Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's just a, a great joy to have something like that in your own backyard. Yeah, here. yeah, it's it's incredible. But it is a world-recognized uh, research facility. But you're right, it has been mentioned many times before. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it has. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I think, actually, yeah. I can't remember it being mentioned before. Oh, just uh, once, the gardens. Yeah, believe it or not, yeah. only yeah. one time. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just playing. Glenn. No, no, I like that. Well, and then, you know, I love delicious food, you know, um, and then I like to splurge sometimes on very, very good meals. And ever since I moved to Pasadena in 1996, whenever I felt like putting on a nice shirt or jacket, I would just go on to uh, either the Parkway Grill or the Arroyo Chop House oh, yes. and just enjoy a lot of times for Valentine's Day. I mm. take my wife to the Arroyo Chop House. You know, we go there once or twice a year, you know. What do you uh, get there? Oh, my goodness. I've had the the Alaskan king crab legs there. You know, I do like uh, a nice either a ribeye or filet mignon, you know. Yeah. Love it. And the wine is really nice. They've got a good collection. We bring a bottle sometimes, but other times we're like, yeah, let, what do you have, you know? Wow. It's yeah, tough I, to get into on Valentine's Day. It is. It is. Yeah. It's usually you got to call like weeks of course in advance and they've also got a chocolate souffle right <laughs> oh yeah they do they absolutely and you know not only that they've got um so many fun things to try and everybody there is really really friendly and really down to earth for such a wonderful nice place and it's been there a long time and uh the parkway grill they have their own like organic garden you know yeah. they grow their own produce and things right awesome so i like it awesome well uh I hope you guys have enjoyed that episode and can see why we've had Glenn on again to share these stories with you. Uh, you know, you have so much to share. You know, I can see in, in, like you're just overflowing with all these stories and you, <laughs> you could probably go on forever. Uh, but uh, I thank you for, for coming on the show and sharing that uh, story with us and for the listeners. And, and coming up, uh, we'll have Glenn's uh, podcast. In other words... A, a podcast devoted only to Glenn, you know. <laughs> hey, uh, as long as you guys for, are there with me, Scott. For years and years, it can run. And Let's do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> there's no shortage of stories with him, right? Right. And, and they're so, they're so. Yeah. I felt like a loose fire hose with you guys today. Yeah. I, was just so, I was trying to get so much out in a small amount of time. I, I, um, I just appreciate you guys having me back. This is a really fun yeah, time right. to be able to tell these stories to you guys. And um, I, I just, I'm really happy that you guys are interested in this and thanks for having me oh, back. Yeah. And, and the real test will be what our good faithful listener Thomas thought of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thomas is yeah. the judge. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being on the show and uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, once again, if you can share with the listeners how they can get a hold of you. Well, my Instagram is cdog297. You can follow me on Instagram. 
Um, you can S-E-A, look. S-E-A, dog, right? Oh, no, no. Uh, C, the, the letter, letter C, C and then oh, okay. the O-G. It stands for chili dog. That's another story. Oh, that I'll tell okay. You. All right. If we get back into our work. That'll be on Glenn's mode. podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. C-Dog 297. That's a capital C-D-O-G 297 on Instagram. You can follow me there. Uh, you can look at my website at www.glenn with two N's and then Lewis, L-O-U-I-S and then E-V-A-N-S.com, glennlewisevans.com. You can see my work there and, um, what I've been lucky enough in this wonderful life to be a part of. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Uh, you can always reach out to us and let us know any show ideas or if you're interested in being on the show, if you live or work in the San Gabriel Valley, uh, check us out on our website. Uh, hdvmasterkey.com and uh, we look forward to uh, spending time with you next episode thank you thanks guys thanks for checking out another episode of the SGV Masterkey you can find the full back catalog of the SGV Masterkey at sgvmasterkey.com and wherever you get your podcasts this show was produced and edited by Russell Mono and Victoria Allers of Kind Monster Productions Thanks again for listening or watching. We'll see you again real soon in the next episode. Nice mother. No, kind mother.